You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. I really like grocery shopping. Anyone out there with me on that? I enjoy grocery shopping. I like to cruise through a freshly stocked produce section. I I could spend long periods of time looking over the meat displays in the grocery store. I like the, the surprise of discovering new food items that I can work into my repertoire because I also like to cook. I like to cook, y'all. I like to cook barbecue outside on the smoker. Y'all know that. All right, that's the ministry. That's the snackrament, y'all. That's, that's how... It's not the preaching, it's the barbecue, y'all. But I also like to cook inside. I like to cook inside in the kitchen when Vanessa will let me. And if I'm not freestyling on a meal and executing the art of just picking spices at a whim in order to, to mix up something good, I'm trying out something new, like Mexican. I've been practicing my tortillas or Korean barbecue, because I want even barbecue to be cross-cultural, amen? Or I might be trying out French classics or Middle Eastern cuisine. But as much as I enjoy grocery shopping, as much as I enjoy cooking, I love to eat even more. In fact, the whole reason for grocery shopping and cooking is eating. You can grocery shop all day, but grocery shopping alone will not keep you alive. You can cook all day and smell the aromas and hear the sizzles and and see a beautiful plate of food, but none of this can keep you alive if you don't sit down and eat. You won't have the nourishment that you need to do anything else in your life if you don't eat. Now, if you've been around the Christian faith for long, you've likely heard that the Bible is central to our life with God in the world, the scriptures. We believe that when scripture speaks, God speaks, and that this is central to our lives in the world. And many Christians enjoy studying the Bible. They read commentaries on scripture and study theological works about the Bible. They like to learn fun facts about the Bible that they didn't know before, and many can spend long periods of time in study. There are people who love to study the Bible and teach the Bible, whether formally or informally. Many people love giving their counsel to others and sharing their biblical and theological insights that they learned with their friends. But the truth is, the whole reason for studying and reading is communion with God. It's communion. Studying the scriptures is like grocery shopping and cooking, but meditation is like eating. It's like eating. Meditation is when we actually sit down and eat. And many Christians are malnourished because they have confused grocery shopping and cooking with eating. Many Christians are malnourished because they spend their time in study without a mind to eat, to digest what they see and learn 
in the book. The purpose of spending time in study of the scriptures, the purpose of theological learning, learning how to think God's thoughts after him, is so that we will have communion with God and with one another. Here's the deal. We won't have the nourishment that we need to live the lives that we should live in this world if we do not eat, if we do not meditate, if we don't commune with God. Last week, if you weren't here, last week we started a new series on the Christian practices or what you may know as the spiritual disciplines. And we called this series For the Life of the World. And what we said is this. Here's what we said. If you want to get the quick, uh, the, the quick summary of last week, if you missed it, to catch you up. I want to encourage you to, if you're a member of Grace Mosaic, go back and listen to it so that you'll be prepared for the rest of the series. But here was the main point that we made. We must not approach the Christian practices in the mode of spiritual narcissism where we reduce the practices to a mere tool in reaching our potential. And self-actualization, which is the, the top of the pyramid of human needs according to the worldview that we are exposed to in the culture surrounding us. It's not about spiritual narcissism. That's not why we take up the practices of the Christian life. Rather, the Christian practices help us to order our lives in the world for the life of the world. The Christian practices are about helping us to order our lives, to order our loves, to order our life in the world for the life of the world. In other words, the reason why we exist is to glorify God by living for the other. That's what the practices help us to get our lives organized to do. That's how it shapes who we're becoming. So today we're going to take up the first Christian practice. Last week, we kind of set up our approach to the spiritual disciplines. Today, we're actually going to begin working through the spiritual disciplines or the Christian practices. And today we begin with meditation. And we're going to approach our text through two points where we see the scope of meditation and the hope of meditation. The scope of meditation and the hope of meditation. So let's look at our first point, the scope of meditation. Now, we all know that the way in which a book starts often sets the tone for the rest of that book. It introduces the themes. It helps you to, to appreciate what you should expect or, or how you should prepare yourself to engage with that book. And the Psalter is no different. What you'll notice as you hear Psalm 1 is that you get two contrasting pictures. You have the picture of two different characters that we are invited to observe. You get the picture of two contrasting lives. The blessed life of the righteous that is rooted, fruitful, resilient, and prosperous, and the fruitless, ephemeral life of the wicked that has no substance. But what's important to note is this. At the very beginning of the very first psalm in the Psalter, in this portrayal of the blessed life of righteousness that is rooted, fruitful, resilient, and prosperous is meditation. At the very beginning is meditation. Look at verses 1 through 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now what we see in meditation is that it has a proper focus in this text on the law of the Lord. Now, law is the English translation of the Hebrew word Torah, which at a very basic level simply means instruction. It's instruction. It's God's way. But that word is also used to describe the entirety of God's communication in Scripture. It's also used in that way. It's Torah is what God has said. And we are enjoined, we are called by the psalmist to meditate on what God has said. What God has said in his word. Now here's the deal. We are invited to meditate on everything that God has said in scripture. And when we put meditation together with what God is, well, what the psalmist is saying about Torah, meditating on Torah, meditating on God's instruction, meditating on God's way of life, what we get is something really important. We could develop meditation in this way. Speaking from a Christian vantage point, this is how I want to encourage you to think about meditation. Meditation is sustained imaginative reflection in which we listen for God's voice in the scriptures with the intent to be formed and to follow. I'm going to read that again. Meditation is sustained imaginative reflection in which we listen for God's voice in the scriptures with the intent to be formed and to follow. I want you to think about it like this. I know there are plenty of, out, of you out there who have, who have gone on to, to higher education. Some of you have PhDs. Some of you have master's degrees. Uh, some of you graduated magna cum laude. Some of y'all, thank you, laude. Amen. All right. But here's the thing, here's the thing. I want you to think about this. Frame it up like this. Meditation is less like taking the mind of a scholar and more like taking the mind of a lover. Meditation is less like taking the mind of a scholar that analyzes and, and chops it up and logic and... And it's more like taking the mind of a lover. Imagining the connection. The longing of heart, the desire, the yearning for the other. That's meditation. Augustine, in his confessions, I think gives us a picture, a, a feel of what meditation sounds like and feels like. He says this in his confessions. He says, late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. You were with me, and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you. Though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. You called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant, and I drew in my breath and now pant after you. I tasted you, and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. Do you hear the heart behind these words? This is the meditative reflection of 
African church father, Augustine, and we're getting a window into what meditation feels like and sounds like. It's not just extracting the data and the information from Scripture. It's not just grocery shopping. It's eating. It's nourishment. It's imaginative and experiential to a degree. But think about how meditation can get more detailed in the following. And listen, I know that meditation is actually something that is very much on the, on the mind of pop culture. And there's a lot of talk of mindfulness. And, and I go and I meditate. And a lot of the, of the ideas about meditation are informed by Eastern religion. Okay, There is a distinction in the way that, that Christians throughout time and around the globe have, have kind of laid out the way we are to understand meditation. And by focusing on the word of God, I think that we get some amazing breadth. It opens up the scope of what Christians in their meditative practice are to put their reflective, imaginative time to. We're invited by, by taking us to the to the Torah, the instruction of God, all that God has revealed in his scripture. I want you to think about this. We're invited and called to meditate on the creation. To meditate on the creation. If you want to make a list, it might be helpful. To meditate on the creation. Look, I remember a day when I would come in and sing, you know, come into church and I would sing songs like How Great Thou Art. And I'm like, why are we singing about the trees and the mountains and all this? I don't get it. But what he's saying is that when I look at these things, when I experience the beauty of these things, they lead me to a higher beauty. When, when, I, when I taste the delight of a, a delicious meal, it, it, it takes me to someone more satisfying and more delightful. When I see the grandeur looking out over a mountain or looking out from a mountain, I'm reminded of the grandness and the greatness of God. All of this creation, Psalm 19 tells us, declares the glory of God. It shouts out his magnificence and his great worth. It's all pointing to us. It's all pointing us to the great creator. There was a game. There was an article that we, Vanessa and I had to read in seminary. And uh, the name of the article was The Great Penzatsky. And it was about this husband and wife couple who uh, they lived out, you know, in the mountains and, and they would go on this, this trip. And this, this one guy who was a pastor, he got his Ph.D. from Princeton. He was brilliant. He's used to doing exegesis and log logic chopping through the scriptures and theological stuff. He, they invite him to come out to join them on their camping trip. And they would play this game where the wife would point to something, a rock. She would say, the rock. And her husband would be like, ah, the sturdiness of God, his steadiness. And anything that one would point to in the creation for the other, they had to say what characteristic or attribute of God it reminded them of or what redemptive truth in the scriptures that it reminded them of. And he was, this guy who was a scholar who wrote this, this Princetonian PhD, he was annoyed with it at first. But then he says, it got a hold of me and entranced me. And pretty soon I couldn't look at anything without seeing God. What he was saying is that by the way that they looked at the world, they filled his eyes with a vision for God's presence all around. Remember, this creation is brimming with God. 
And all of it is meant to point us to the great reality. That's what Augustine was saying. He said, he, did, did you hear that quote? Let's read that quote again. He says, he says, late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. He says, you were with me and I was not with you. What he's saying is, I missed you in the creation. I missed you in the world around me. I missed you in a great glass of wine. I missed you in a, in a trip to the Caribbean. I didn't see your beauty. You were with me, but I was not with you. The creation is a means of reflecting on the greatness and goodness and love and mercy of God. Even on blasted squirrels. I'm trying, y'all. I'm trying. This squirrels be tearing up my yard. When they tore up my groceries that Vanessa ordered on an Instacart in front of my house, that's when it got real challenging. I digress. This is what Athanasius of Alexandria, church father, says. He says, for no part of creation is left void of him. He has filled all things everywhere. And Cyril of Jerusalem, not to be confused with Cyril of Chavis, our RUF campus minister, Cyril says this, the wider our contemplation of creation, the grander is our conception of God. God has given us the audio-visual to help to expand the scope of our thinking and appreciation of him. We can meditate on creation. We can meditate on the promises of God. Chiefly among those promises, God's promise to be present with us, God's promise to provide for us, and God's promise that he has a plan for not only our individual lives, but for our communal life and even for the entire, the entire world. We can meditate on those promises. And the more that we meditate on those promises, that we digest them, the less we fall for the empty promises that are given to us in the lies of the cultural messages that we hear. That you're valuable so long as you're beautiful and stylish. That if you stomp on everyone else to get to the top, you're really going to be satisfied. Those are the false promises that are given to us all around. And social media magnifies the capacity for us to be duped by the false promises. But the promises of God stabilize us and actually energize us to live lives that are free from selfishness and self-interest. Because if you know that God is present with you, then you don't need to fret about taking care of your own life. And you can actually give your life to someone else. If you know that God has promised to provide for you, then you can be generous to the people around you. Because you don't have to secure yourself, as Elder Kenny was saying earlier today. He is your fence. Come on. By the way, I love when the Lord gets to work and he, sometimes it goes from praying. It's not quite preaching. It's, it's preaching. You know what I'm saying? Amen, Elder. Praise God. But you, but you see, when you know that promise deep in your soul, you're free to be generous. And when you know the promise of God's plan, you can hold your own loosely and you won't be devastated when they don't completely work out the way that you wanted them to. You know that there is an overriding, infinitely wise plan at work and you're caught up in it. You can meditate on the promises of God. You can meditate on the Lord's attributes and character. What is God like? So much of our reflection at times Reveals a pocket-sized God. Reveals a God who's asleep at the wheel. Reveals a God who is questionable. 
Not sure what I can do with him. But when we are attuned and, and meditating on the attributes and the character of God, it stabilizes us in the face of the winds that blow through our lives. We can meditate on the Lord's attributes and character. We can meditate on the Father. We can meditate on the Son. We can meditate on the Spirit. God, three in one and one in three. Each member of the Trinity has done something unimaginable for us. The Father in his care for us. The Son in his life and death and resurrection for us. The Spirit indwelling and abiding in us, connecting us, investing in us all of the riches that were accomplished by Jesus at the cross, investing his peace into us, investing his righteousness. Meditate on the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We can meditate on anticipated good from the Lord's hands. Anticipated good. When you wake up in the morning, what are you anticipating? What are you anticipating from God? That he's going to drag you? through the day, kicking and screaming. It's going to be joyless because after all, it's not certain that God can be counted on to do anything. It's not certain that God can bring joy in this situation or can give me hope to endure. It's not, it's not guaranteed that when I'm facing times of suffering and trial that God can work in that. It's hard. It's hard. What do you anticipate from God when you get up in the morning? I think that the entirety of the scriptures gives, gives us warrant to anticipate good from God. To anticipate good even in the minutia of our lives. The scriptures tell us that he knows when a single hair falls from our head. That's how intimately involved he is in our lives. That's how much he cares. You should anticipate good. Meditate on anticipated good. Mull over it. Imagine it. His presence, his promises, his, his goodness what you can anticipate, God going out ahead of you. Reflect on that. Imagine that. We can meditate on the Lord's work, chiefly in Jesus Christ. That's what that famous hymn is inviting us to. Were you there when they crucified my allowed your mind to travel the road of infinite love that led Jesus to the cross? Have you ever allowed your minds to reflect upon and ruminate on the kind of love that would allow the king of glory to be dishonored and spit upon and mocked by the very people that he sustained with the power of his word? Have you ever allowed your mind to imagine his mind? <laughs> 
as he calls out forgiveness, as he refuses to defend himself in the face of false accusation? Have you ever allowed your mind to wander through these things and to think, what kind of love is this that has been laid upon me? What kind of goodness is this that has found me? We can meditate on that one reality for the rest of our lives and we will never exhaust it. But it's one of the things that we ought to set our hearts upon to meditate on the work of Jesus in the gospel. We can meditate on the Lord's rescue in particular stories of scripture in the lives of the saints knowing that if he did it for them, he can do it for us. Seeing God's track record on the pages of Scripture, seeing God's resume on the pages of Scripture, we can meditate on what he is able to do in the lives of his people. What could make someone choose death over forsaking Jesus? What could make someone choose death in faithfulness to Jesus over betraying their sexual ethic, like many women who were martyred in the early church. When they were called to abandon the Christian sexual ethic, they said, rather than forsake my Lord, you can take my life. What kind of power must God have to work in the lives of his people like that? Do you realize that's the power that's at work in you? Paul says it like this in Philippians, the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is the power that's at work in you now. And the one who began a good work in you will see that through to the day of Christ Jesus. He'll complete the work. But we can meditate on God's work of rescue in the stories of others. We can meditate on the return of Christ. We can imagine that day. Now, that is not pie in the sky. That's not escapist. But I want you to think about something. I lived in New York City. Vanessa and I were in New York City when 9-11 happened. And to this day, it has captured the American imagination. We, we go over that day again and again. We rehearse the details. The story is told over and over again. It's told from the perspective of the police officers and the firefighters who were working the scene. It's told from the perspective of the residents of New York. It's told every, everyone who was alive at that time has a story, their 9-11 story, right? And if that day of disaster could call to mind such reflection and such, such formation in the lives of, uh, in, in, of Americans, what kind of reflection, what kind of impression could the day of the Lord leave upon us? That day where he scatters the darkness, that day when he dries every tear, that day when he brings perfect justice, when he deals with evil once and for all, that day when he calls his people out of the trial and the tribulation, and he makes this world new. What kind of formation could that accomplish in your life? Reflect on the day of the Lord. Reflect on the Lord's future. Last week in family worship, the kids were peppering me with questions about glory. And we just imagined together. We talked about how Jesus' resurrection body went through a wall. And then, are we going to be able to do that? We talked about what it's going to be like when sin no longer stains anything, no relationships, when our joy is perfect. We, we talked about what that would look like, what it, what it would look like to inhabit a, a renewed world and renewed relationships. And, and the kids just kept coming up with questions that I didn't know answers to. And, and it was, 
but we were just meditating together on it. And I tell you what, it made me long for it. It made me long for it. We should meditate, friends, on the feast to come. Imagine what that's going to be like. Imagine it. Don't settle for the idea of the feast to come. Smell it. See it. Taste it. Hear it. Enter into it. Enter into it. Meditate on what the Lord can do in the lives of our neighbors and in our neighborhood. Passages like Jeremiah invite us to that. Seek the well-being of your city in which you are planted. Do what's good. Do it good. Imagine what God could do in the lives of our neighbors who are struggling to make ends meet. Imagine what God could do in the lives of our neighbors who are feeling lonely and separated and, and who are killing themselves trying to build an identity on success and accomplishment. Imagine what God could do in their lives. And imagine what kind of role you could play in that. To be someone who can bring such simple good news as, you know you, you can get off that treadmill. Did you know that? The treadmill, the reality of motion with the illusion of progress. Right? You're breaking a sweat and ain't getting nowhere. You can invite your neighbors off of that treadmill. It is the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ that gets us off the treadmill. Because we are accepted on the virtues and the righteousness of another. And that, that other is Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of it. We can meditate on that. Meditate on the specific answers that you have received to your prayers over the years. What has God done for you? Again and again, the scriptures invite God's people to remember what he has done for them. It's one thing to remember what God has done. It's another thing to make it personal, to remember what God has done for me, what God has done for us. As a community here, Grace Mosaic, are you in touch with it? What has God done in you? What has God done through you? Think about every mountain that he's brought you over, every trial that he's seen you through, for every blessing that he's laid upon you, and how that has utterly changed your life and your course. Meditate on where you would be without him versus where you are now with him. Can you imagine it? Do you know what I would be doing without him? I can't speak these things up from the pulpit. That's what I would be doing. And I meditate on it. And it, it astonishes me afresh. And you know what it does? It kills self-righteousness. It kills judgmentalism. It kills all of the things that make us ugly. Remembering what God has done for me. Meditate on the family to which you belong, the historic and global church. Our failures through the years should make us humble and, and, and interested in making things right that we have made wrong. But the beauties and the glories and the successes through our history ought to encourage us and inspire us to participate as members of this historic global body. Meditate on ways to bless the people around you. It takes time and planning and, 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 and reflection to think about how to be a blessing to your neighbors. You will never be able to cheat means in the process of your transformation. It doesn't just get zapped into you. Think about it. I like how Chrysostom put it. Meditate on ways to view your neighbors 
as they are. Blessed image bearers that even sometimes tear down your fence. I like how Chris Austin put it. Listen to Chris Austin. He says, if you cannot find Christ in the beggar at the church door, you will not find him in the cup at the table. Y'all hear Chris Austin? If you can't find Christ in the people around you, you ain't going to find him anywhere else. Because it says you ain't looking with the right kind of eyes. Meditate on the songs we sing in worship. And this will turn mere singing and staring up at the people leading into worship. Investing your heart, lifting your heart to the Lord. You know those moments where you close your eyes and it just gets good to you? That's meditation. That's what we're talking about. It's not emotionalism, though it involves your emotions. It is giving yourself over to these truths, to the reality of who God is and who God has promised to be. Meditation turns mere singing into worship. This is what makes us flammable and capable of worshiping God at the drop of a hat, regardless of our stylistic or musical preferences or circumstances. The above meditative subjects change us and form us. They relativize our problems and anxieties and fears. Albert the Great said this. He said, the contemplation of the saints is fired by the love of the one contemplated. That is God. The meditation of the saints is fired by the love of the one that they're thinking on, and that is God. Because here's the deal. What's the motivation to meditate on the Lord? To meditate on the word of the Lord? What's the motivation? The good news that from all eternity, the Lord has been meditating on us. We've always been on his mind. Can you fathom the truth that God has taken thought of you? Even in our sin and misery, God speaks to us like this. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? This is what God is like. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. He has poured over the best ends and the best means for you, for us. God thinks of you. You occupy his mind as if you were the sole resident, as if you were the only one. That's how God thinks on you. It's amazing. Practically, you have to declutter your life to make time for this practice with the same priority with which you make time to eat food. You have to recognize that you can't survive without it. You have to set a place, set a time, protect it, practice it. Your life depends on it. You know, they say it takes 30 days to make a habit. So here's something I'd encourage you to do. Set your place, set your time. That may be a corner of your house. That may be a coffee shop. Set a time, set a place and build it in. And then tell someone that you're accountable to about it and ask them to help you to build this into your life over the next 30 days. And watch and see the difference. Watch and see the difference. You will notice that you are more rooted and fruitful and more resilient. Here's the deal. You're not smart enough to get by without meditation on what God has said. You're not gifted enough. And think of it like this. The most incredible musician, I studied music, most of you know that, the most incredible musicians that you could ever encounter on the face of the planet, their skills count for nothing if, in, if their instrument is not tuned. 
Meditation is tuning your heart to God. And no amount of gifting or skill will save your playing, as it were, if you're not tuned. Meditation tunes us. The hope of meditation is that we will get past the superficialities of our age. The rush, the hurry, the busyness, the flying around all day, every day. The shallowness of relationships, the shallowness of our spirituality, the superficiality of our neighbor love, the drudgery of the tasks that we do, the surface level dealing that we do in our lives is because we are not a meditative people. The hope of meditation is that we'll sink roots into the very life of God and bear fruit through our life in the world. The hope is that we will be present and awake right now rather than sleepwalking through life, missing what is really there. It's not really an issue, ultimately, of whether or not we will meditate. It's a question of the subject of our meditation. Will you meditate on your anxieties and your fears and your concerns and your worries and what's going to happen to your kids, what's going to happen to your relationships, is my career going to advance? Those are all meditative subjects but they won't bring life. They won't bring rootedness or fruitfulness, really. We're given a different subject. You could have somebody grocery shop for you, right? You, you could even have somebody cook for you, but nobody can eat for you. You must eat. I'm inviting you over this next season in the life of this church that you take up meditation as a practice so that your delight may increase in the Lord so that you'll be rooted so that you'll be fruitful so that you will be resilient and so that you will be a blessing to your neighbors take meditation as a way to order your life in the world for the life of the world let's pray Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.